Section three of Days with the Great Composers by May Clarissa Gillington Byron. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section three A Day with Schubert. Time a cloudy April day in the year eighteen twenty four. Scene a gloomy, dusty, ill furnished apartment in a back street in Vienna. Enter a short, round-shouldered, podgy-looking man, unbrushed, unwashed, unshaved, who, without a glance at the coffee going cold on the extremely dubious tablecloth, drops clumsily upon the broken chair before the piano, and flings himself into an animated rendering of the song which he has composed during his so-called toilet. There is little doubt that in the case of many great geniuses, not only is their treasure in earthen vessels, but themselves are merely vehicles and media for the expression of some divine immortal impulse, for the ebullition of aspirations and inspirations with which they naturally have but little in common. And no one meeting Franz Schubert for the first time could doubt that he was an instance of this paradoxical state of affairs. For the extraordinary rapidity and ease with which he can compose under every variety of unfavorable circumstance induce some of his friends to believe that he writes in a state of clairvoyance, and this may not be altogether remote from the truth. He often seems to evolve his lovely creations with the facility and flexibility of a bird who sings, it knows not how and with the mysterious intuitive perception of genius he can render into lovely symmetry of ordered sound and express with the most delicate tenderness some phase of life or emotion of which he has had no possible experience whether it be the religious rhapsody and austere fervor of renunciation which inspires the young nun as she gazes into the depth of the tempest or the undulating phrase of some slumber-song such as that upon which he is now engaged. Soft sighs the wood, the stream sings clear, Thou darling babe, O come thou here. He comes, he stays, the lovely child, And all his sorrows are beguiled. In leafy fields the quails do cry, In colors gay the day goes by. On petals red, on petals blue, is poured the heaven's glistening dew. In softest grass the babe shall play, while clouds above him take their way, until on mother's drowsing breast the dream-god rocks him into rest. Johann Meyerhofer Here, between melody and accompaniment, which in Schubert is not a mere obbligato, but an integral and essential part of the song, the whole gracious and graceful composition would yield to any hearer who was quite ignorant of the words the sense of rocking winds, rocking leaves, rocking grasses. It is the sum of nature's own cradle-songs, gathered up and transmuted into the tone art. Yet it would be hard to discover a more unprepossessing exterior than the outer man which belies the exquisite imaginative powers of Franz Schubert. His low forehead, 
thick lips and retroussé nose give him almost a negroid aspect, and his eyes, which in conversation can light up with brilliant fire, are in general dull and melancholy. These characteristics, combined with the spectacles which he wears, make him look very much older than his real age, which is only twenty-seven. Happy is the nation, it has been said, that has no history. But the man who has had no history is apt in personal appearance, if not in mental habit, to reflect the drab, monotonous circumstances of his life. The chronicling of small beer, which fate inflicts on some, eventually affects their very features. And never was a genius condemned to more unexhilarating tasks or fostered in more hopeless obscurity. The son of a poor parish schoolmaster, picking up a musical education here and there in sparrow fashion as a means of livelihood, precocious but no performer, painstaking yet hardly brilliant, Schubert mastered the principles of his art quite early in life, and acquired a knowledge of vocal and instrumental music which stands him in good stead. He has been composing, with almost fatal fluency, ever since he was thirteen years old. Music is, in short, the essence of his being. But few composers can find a hearing unheralded by influential friends or unaided by executive ability, and Schubert has had neither one nor the other. His only means of earning a bare livelihood for three years was to teach in his father's school, not music, but the three R's, to instruct the lower-class urchins of Vienna under circumstances of unutterable weariness. But he did not, for this, forego his rainbow dreams or demolish his castles in the air. He went on composing as inveterately as ever, and these monotonous years of drudgery have made him what he is now a patient, painstaking, conscientious man, turning out so much regular work per diem. A certain patient, methodical habit has been bred in this most spontaneous and prolific of composers, that capacity for taking infinite pains which has been said to characterize the greatest geniuses. And therefore we now behold him, seated at his somewhat cracked piano, carefully and lovingly committing to paper the charming numbers of his Schirne Müllerin song cycle, having already completed the swaying melody of the slumber song. He is not now, as in his early days, hampered by sheer want of pence for music paper, from setting down his fluent inspirations. He is not now obliged to go eight hours and more between his very frugal meals. Indeed, he is at present selling his songs easily, and might be in comparative affluence but for his hopeless helplessness in business matters. But his needs still remain very simple, his pleasures very few, and his cheerful, sociable disposition preserves him from much of the storm and stress which devastate stronger personalities. As he transcribes the notes with neat, rapid hand, 
he occasionally sings a stave or two to a not very skilful accompaniment, and it then becomes still further evident how he has been handicapped by nature, for his fingers are short and stumpy, a fact which has denied to him from the very outset any pride of executive ability. He can throw great expression into the pianoforte part of his songs, and he at least makes some show with his sonatas, which, according to modern standards of performance, are simplicity itself. But in his more ambitious works he is confronted by insuperable difficulties, and is apt to break down repeatedly, and at last to jump up from the piano in desperation. The pretty Miller-made songs, however, upon which he is at present engaged, do not call for any very strenuous achievement, either on the vocal or instrumental side. One might almost say that they sing themselves, these little episodes of wistful love and mournful jealousy, so exquisitely blent and with such gentle cadences and tender inflections are voice part and pianoforte part. The millbrook is audible throughout, bearing its refrain as running water will. The brook is the first of the dramatis personae to appear in the initial song. The brook is girt with blossoms bright which look through eyes of azure light, the miller joys the stream to view, and sweetheart's eyes are heavenly blue, the flowerets mine are, therefore. And on her lattice I will lay their petals in the twilight gray, to whisper low when slumber deep hath wrapped her little head in sleep, tis only she I care for. And when my dear her eyes doth close, and softly sinks to sweet repose, then murmur as a dream might do, Forget me not, O blossoms blue, My meaning you shall borrow. And when at dawn her dreams shall end, With looks of love above her bend, The dew within your eyes shall be The tears of longing shed by me, Who weeps for love and sorrow. William Muller, The Pretty Miller-Maid, Song Cycle, Number One and the last to leave the scene, when it croons the requiem lullaby of the poor deluded lover, the miller's lad forsaken for the green-clad huntsman. Quiet rest, sweet repose, sings the brook. Quiet rest, sweet repose, weary eyelids close. I will cradle him cool in my deep soft pool, in my chamber of crystal and blue, I will rock him to sleep as a mother might do. Schubert works on with indefatigable energy for some three hours, creating, transcribing, polishing. No one but a musical composer can fully realize the peculiar delight which is born of such inspiration. Not the painter shaping his thoughts into form and color, not the sculptor molding his dreams into plastic form not the lord of language, with whom words are but the raw material for eloquence and beauty, can enjoy a pleasure similar to his who works in sound. The elusive phrase, caught and imprisoned, the eternally fit setting of the exactly right word, 
these present such possibilities of subtle and intricate treatment as appeal not only to the sensual ear, but to the most refined intelligence of man. And the inspiration is authentic. It fluctuates, or comes and goes. Some days it is absent altogether. It leaves its votary worn out by the sheer stress of its impetus while it lasted. He has poured himself out in spendthrift energy upon the affluence of his own creations. Therefore Schubert quite suddenly becomes aware that he is not only exhausted, but decidedly hungry. He mechanically swallows the cold coffee and munches a few mouthfuls of dry bread. One of the waves of depression to which he is periodically subject sweeps over his easily affected mind and reduces him to a condition of limp and immediate misery. He casts a bewildered glance round the untidy, unswept room, and, sitting down at the table, buries his head in his hands for a few moments. Then, rummaging about for a pen and paper, he begins to pour out his woes in a letter to one of his numerous friends. The attacks of rheumatic gout to which he is increasingly subject, and which are gradually vitiating and enfeebling his whole constitution, induce this somewhat unreasonable melancholy. Alas, he writes, that happy, joyous time is gone when every object seemed encircled with a halo of youthful glory and that which has followed is a miserable reality, which I endeavor, as far as possible, to embellish by the gifts of my fancy, for which I thank God. Picture to yourself a man whose health can never be re-established, whose most brilliant hopes have come to nothing, to whom the happiness of proffered love and friendship is but anguish, whose enthusiasm for the beautiful threatens to vanish altogether, and then ask yourself if such a condition does not represent a miserable and unhappy man. Friendlessly, joylessly, should I drag on the days of my existence, were it not that sometimes my brain reels and a glimpse of the sweet days that are gone shoots across my vision. What he means by these references to former joys it is impossible to imagine, for certainly they have never existed save in his own imagination. But that a present grief is preying upon him, in addition to the trouble induced by bad health, is very certain. For Franz Schubert, the plain, squat, awkward, ungainly genius, who has known so many of those romantic friendships with men to which the sentimental German youth is prone, but whose acquaintance with women has been of the most meager and uninteresting character, Franz Schubert, after all these years, is deeply, irretrievably in love. And it is a hopeless passion, this one romance which has entered into his life for Schubert is enamored of a girl of seventeen, Caroline, the younger daughter of Count Esterhazy. For years he has been resident music-teacher, off and on, in the Esterhazy family, usually staying with them at their country seat, Zelez. 
but now he alternately desires and dreads the annual visit to Zelez, for the charming creature who has so completely enslaved him is absolutely out of his reach. Disparity of age, difference of rank, the utter poverty of the lover in looks, wealth, position, in everything but genius, these in themselves would be insuperable barriers to all but the most ardent reciprocal affection. And Caroline Esterhazy does not even pretend to care for this shy, awkward, ugly, young old man, her tutor ever since she was eleven. "'Why do you never dedicate any of your pieces to me?' she has questioned him with unconscious cruelty, and hardly waited to hear his answer. "'What would be the use? All that I do is dedicated to you.' But it is possible that the bitterness of unrequited love has awakened hitherto unknown depths in Schubert's somewhat shallow nature, and that he realizes the full significance, in setting them to music, of Goethe's noble words, Who ne'er his bread with tear-drops ate, Who ne'er through mournful midnight hours Upon his couch hath weeping sate, He knows ye not, ye heavenly powers. For now, before laying aside his pen, he makes a brief entry in the diary which he has lately been keeping. Grief sharpens the understanding and strengthens the soul, whereas joy seldom troubles itself about the former, and makes the latter either effeminate or frivolous. No one fathoms another's grief, no one another's joy. People think they are ever going to one another, and they only go near one another. Oh, the misery of him who knows this by experience! Before he has finished inscribing these gloomy sentiments, a step is heard upon the stairs, and his friend, the poet Meyerhofer, enters, at sight of whom the volatile composer brightens up and utters a merry greeting. Meyerhofer has previously shared Schubert's lodging for two years. Pole-wide apart in temperament, they have many tastes in common. The saturnine, cynical, melancholy man is induced to something resembling cheerfulness by the company of the easy-going Franz. They bandy pleasantries and chaff, pleasing each other affectionately with nicknames and practical jokes. And have you written me anything? at last Schubert inquires. He is always avid after material upon which to exercise his genius. No, I have brought nothing, says the poet, but I will not keep you waiting. And seating himself carelessly at the table, he picks up any paper that lies handy, writes a couple of stanzas, and throws the manuscript to Schubert, who proceeds at once to wed them with immortal strains. This absence of all selective discrimination, this happy-go-lucky readiness to set the first lines that come handy, is perhaps the weakest point in Schubert's artistic character. His magically romantic musical faculty exists, so to speak, per se. It is a power to create, to combine, to develop the most beautiful phraseologies of sound, such as could, presumably, only emanate from the most lofty and poetical intellect. 
He has learned everything, said one of his first music masters, and God has been his teacher. But taken on any other plane, Schubert's mind, owing it may be to the dreary and sordid conditions of his existence, is undoubtedly banal and mediocre. He has no literary knowledge or appreciation whatever. He is utterly indifferent to his materials in the way of lyrics and libretti, because he cannot gauge their intrinsic value, and his fertile fancy will link itself with equal readiness to a Shakespearean song or to the lines of some tenth-rate Teutonic poetaster. He has been jestingly told that he will gradually set the whole of German literature to music should he live long enough and that a poster on a wall will inspire him to melodic phrases. In short, he is incapable of discriminating good verse from absolute rubbish, and therefore amongst his hundreds and hundreds of songs too many are already dead beyond possibility of resuscitation. For it is the essential of a great song that it shall fulfill the sacred rule of three, the mysterious triplicity which governs almost all things, that the words, the voice part, and the instrumental part shall at least be worthy of each other. But, fortunately for Schubert, although he is mainly known to the Viennese connoisseurs by the beauty and multiplicity of his songs, yet his greatest and most ambitious works are purely instrumental. While yet the poet and composer are pursuing their singularly haphazard methods at the table and pianoforte respectively, a more robust personality enters, and the dingy room echoes to a sonorous voice. Johann Michael Vogel, the most famous baritone of the time, a man of fine intellect and splendid judgment, is one of Schubert's best friends. He tells him the truth about his compositions, sings them both in private and in public, and assists him with sound advice on all those mundane matters of which the poor music tutor is so lamentably ignorant. Franz, says he, did you, as I desired, send your settings of Goethe's poems to the master himself? I did, replies Franz, with modest self-depreciation written large upon his face, but it is very many months ago, and no notice whatever has been taken of them. I fear that he considered them unworthy of his words. I have heard, says the great baritone, that Goethe has no true feeling for music. His favorite composer, they say, is Zelter. Du lieber Himmel, Zelter! and of your noblest song of all, the Earl King, he has merely observed that it does not agree with his views of the subject. He is indifferent, because he is incapable of enthusiasm. Were Goethe any less great than he is, remarks Meyerhofer, I should write him down an ass. What are his views upon the subject of the Earl King? I don't care whether it is his own poem or not, compared to the immortality with which our Franz here has invested it. Sing, Vogel, play, Franz, 
and let the very chords cry shame on Goethe in his selfish silence. Without hesitation, Schubert's fingers fall upon the keys in that weird and terrible galloping rhythm which rushes ever faster and faster through Earl Koenig, and the mighty baritone lifts up his voice, and Meyerhofer sees the very visions of the verse drifting bleakly through the narrow room. The Earl King, Earl Koenig who rideth by night through the woods so wild, the father who carries his own dear child. He folds the little one close in his arm to hold him safely, to guard him from harm. My son, upon what with such fear dost thou stare? O oh, seest thou not, father, the earl-king there? The earl-king standing with crown and shroud. My son, tis naught but a wisp of cloud. Thou darling child, come home with me, In beautiful games I will play with thee. Where loveliest flowers thy path shall light, My mother shall deck thee in raiment bright. My father, my father, and didst thou not hear The earl-king whisper so low in my ear? Now hush thee, now hush thee, my treasure be still, The wind through the branches doth wail at will. O oh, say, pretty boy, and with me wilt thou live? My daughter is waiting, sweet welcome to give. Away through the moonlight with her shalt thou sweep. She will sing to thee, dance for thee, rock thee to sleep. My father, my father, and seest thou not there The earl-king's dim daughter with dark flowing hair? My son, my son, yes, I see it right plain, Tis but the old willow that sways in the rain. I love thee, come hither, without more delay, or else by my power I will drag thee away. O father, O father, keep fast now thy hold, the earl-king has seized me, his grasp is so cold. Then trembled the father, he spurred through the wild, he clasped more closely the shuddering child, he reaches his dwelling in doubt and in dread, but held to his bosom the child was dead. Goethe. And now, says Schubert, as with a gasp of relief he lifts his weary wrists from the pianoforte, and now let us go and comfort the inner man. For, Goethe or not, I am a very hungry person. And the three friends adjourn, as is their wont, to the nearest wine-shop, where, amid a congenial circle of young men, friends and admirers of the musician, mirth and easy laughter banish for a while the clouds of destiny which are gathering over Schubert's head, and he practices what he has preached to his old schoolfellow Spahn. Brave your fate, let your gentle spirit expand like a flower-garden, and you may diffuse the warmth of life and show your divine origin wherever you go. His naive simplicity and cheerful, sociable disposition have won him a host of friends of his own class. With those more influential and wealthy folk, aristocratic amateurs who are ready to patronize and advance him, he has little in common. He becomes abashed and awkward in their presence, and his inveterate incapacity to realize his own interests, whether financially or artistically, is the main stumbling-block in his way. 
Hence Beethoven's dying prediction, truly Schubert possesses a spark of the divine fire. Some day he will make a noise in the world, has not been so far fulfilled. The man himself, as is so often the case, has fixed his own limitations. He presents the amazing anomaly of one, in himself ill-read, prosaic, commonplace, of no particular aims or ideals, seeking only the simple satisfaction of the moment, yet thrilled through and through with the flame of that consuming fire which for want of a better name we call genius. The characteristic of this fire is that eventually it purifies. It burns away all that is unworthy in a man. As years pass on, it refines all that is best in him. And Schubert, unconsciously to himself, is reaching loftier altitudes than he knew of old. But so far as fame goes, he is making no great stir in the world. Genius, like murder, will out, and he is discussed in dilettante artistic circles encouraged by music publishers and concert managers. But he has never succeeded in placing a single composition anywhere outside Vienna. He has never heard any of his great orchestral works adequately performed. He has never given a concert on his own account. And as to pecuniary circumstances, he has never in his life received as much as a hundred pounds per annum. Ill health and pain, continually on the increase, are breeding in him a sluggishness and carelessness as to his own interests, though they have no influence whatever upon the lavish output of his creative power. And, in short, he is becoming, day by day, more inert toward the present and the future, to everything except that glorious art which to him is all in all. Yet the cheerful conversation of his intimates, and the exhilarating effects of his modest repast, have brightened Schubert's eyes, and infused a new animation into his features as he passes along the street and the delicate stanzas of a Heine lyric dance themselves to music through his brain. From that perennial fount of inspiration, the verse of Heine, Schubert is destined to draw but very seldom. Its natural magic would seem to appeal to him almost in vain. But as he repeats to himself with a smile of pure enjoyment the fisher-maiden's song, he cannot fail to associate it with the maiden of his dreams and with his own adoring heart. Thou lovely fisher-maiden, come draw thy boat to land, and let us sit together so tenderly hand in hand. O rest upon me, dearest, what terror is shaking thee, who daily never fearest to dare the wild dark sea. My heart is like yon ocean, has storm and ebb and flow, and pearls of pure devotion stored in its depths below. Heinrich Heine He pulls out a tattered notebook, and hastily jots down a few bars of the melody, then, still happy, pursues his ordinary afternoon routine. To visit his father's house and chat a while with his brothers, 
to call upon various music publishers and submit his latest compositions to them, avoiding any haggling over terms by the acceptance of some mere driblet of remuneration, to visit the opera house with a view to the performance of the comic opera Der Häusliche Krieg, that is, the domestic war, for which he is making efforts to secure a hearing, to compose in season and out of season, whilst conversing with friends in music shops, or waiting to interview some patron, or even while drinking a glass of lager in some quiet tavern. Such are his usual avocations during the latter part of the day. Nor are they only songs in which his ideas find such unremitting outlet, but pianoforte pieces, string quartets and quintets, concerted choral works, operas and masses, incidental music for the theatre, and great orchestral composition. Every known form and mold in which music can be cast, Schubert essays with a light heart and with a prodigal fertility of invention. When evening arrives, the composer must needs pay a little attention to his outer man, and rummage his scanty wardrobe for a few clean articles of attire, for he has to attend one of the soirees, termed Schubertidianen, which his particular friends have organized in his honor. And here, after the sedulous industry of the morning, after the rebuffs and disappointments and snubs so patiently borne, which have been only too frequent in the afternoon, for a little while Franz Schubert tastes the joy of fame, if it can be dignified by such a name, of popularity at least amongst his own small bourgeois circle. The songs and dances are invariably of his own composing, light-hearted, convivial companions surround him. For an hour or two he is in his element. But presently an invasion of noisier admirers, what he terms a coarse crew addicted to beer-drinking and sausage-eating, jars upon his weary nerves, and he slips away into the spring night, the cool air falling pleasantly upon him after the glare of the overheated room. He feels that he has been, in his own words, tickled towards idiotic laughter instead of elevated towards God. A mind that is too light generally hardens a heart that is too heavy. And with that cooling touch, more peaceful thoughts come softly to Schubert as he gropes his way upstairs and sits down for a moment's thought before lighting his rushlight candle. Man, as he has said, is a ball between chance and passion. But at present he is susceptible to nobler impulses, and the things which are invisible draw near to him in the darkened room, as the starlight glimmers through the windows. Beautiful melodies float into his mind, linked with elevating words, such as those of kindled skies, Himmelsfunken. The breath of God outflows and stills the yearning breast, the heart with rapture glows that longed in vain for rest, and soft as in a dream is loosed each earthly band, and holy teardrops stream towards the heavenly land. O touch of joy divine, as mild as morning dew, 
The fires of God do shine from out the tranquil blue. The hearts that exiled roam have heard the call from far, and long to be at home where all their treasures are. J. P. Silbert I never force religious ecstasy upon myself, he has said. I never set myself to compose hymns or prayers, except when I am involuntarily overcome by the feeling and spirit of devotion. And as his simple emotions express themselves in sweet and solemn sound, and the old piano once more answers to his eager touch, strange reveries pass before the gaze of the lonely musician. The masters of his art, with benign and approving faces, seem to smile upon him out of the past, those masters whom he venerates with such unfeigned humility. Here is Haydn, Papa Haydn, with his kindly face and powdered periwig. May thy pure and peaceful spirit hover around me, dear Haydn, murmurs Schubert, and if I never can become like thee, peaceful and guileless, at all events none on earth has such deep reverence for thee as I have. The face of Mozart, half humorous, half melancholy, wanders fugitive athwart the room, companioned by lovely strains. Gently as from a distance, says Franz to himself, the magic tones of Mozart's music sound upon my ears. Thus do these sweet impressions, passing into our souls, work beneficently in our inmost being, and no time, no change of circumstance can obliterate them. In the darkness of this life they show a light, a clear, beautiful distance from which we gather confidence and hope. O Mozart, immortal Mozart, how many and what countless images of a brighter, better world hast thou stamped upon our souls? Images out of his own songs now float before his mind in a motley phantasmagoria, romantic, picturesque, expressing themselves half in terms of sight and half of sound. For there is a point in the mental processes of a composer where the senses may be said to converge. The lovely Margaret, forsaken by Faust, sits sorrowful at her spinning-wheel, whose low, incessant humming, in the accompaniment, bears a monotonous burden to her song. My rest is gone, my heart is sore, and I shall find it nevermore. The jolly vagabond of courage, Mütt, strides through the snowstorm, caroling lustily, as he brushes off the stinging flakes. Gaily onward thus I roam, facing wind and weather. If no god makes earth his home, be we gods together. Sylvia, pure and perfect, the very Sylvia of Shakespeare's imagining, smiles to hear herself portrayed in such lovely accents. Holy, fair, and wise is she, the heavens such grace did lend her, that adored she might be. And Imogen, half awake, hears the actual flutter of skyward wings in those exquisite phrases which tell how the lark at heaven's gate sings, and Phoebus gins arise, and winking merry buds begin to ope their golden eyes. 
the impassioned lover of serenade, Stenchen, pours forth his pleading in immortal strains. He is just vaguely visible through the warm, enchanted darkness where the nightingale also sings, and the unhappy hero of the wraith, du doppelganger, stands horror-struck before his beloved's dwelling in the moonlight, and sees his phantom likeness wringing its hands. Thou pallid spectre, thou phantom before me, why mockest thou thus my love and woe, the pangs that on this threshold tore me so many a night long years ago? The wanderer paces his unending course in calm despair, my constant sighs demanding where, always where. The lonely shepherd in Rosamond, softly mourning to his reed-pipe, utters himself in tender melancholy notes, and the monk and the crusaders go past in dim procession, chanting how all life is a wild crusade to gain the Holy Land and the waves gather and roll and roar around the weeping women of Ammer by the sea. These and a thousand other transitory forms follow each other in fragmentary staves of music through the brain of Schubert. With a childlike modest pride he welcomes each, recognizing its authentic and intrinsic beauty. Great echoes of his more ambitious works shape themselves augustly in the silence, and to the echoes of symphony and overture the whole universe seems to make momentary answer, You were never born to oblivion, you were never created for obscurity. Play the man, Franz Schubert. Take by storm, if need be, the place for which music herself has wholly made you tread down the stumbling blocks of circumstance, let a just ambition urge you on. Are not all these the children of your brain, and shall they despise their father? But soon the vast reverberations cease. They have kindled no responsive impetus of energy. The medium of divine inspirations must remain perpetually a medium, and no more. Fate has no further guerdon for him in this life, beyond his own immediate pleasure in the outcome of his art. His single-minded devotion to it is destined to be its own and only recompense. For whatever a man hopes of posthumous fame, there is no doubt that a present recognition of his merit is worth them all. And, although they may sit in the orchestra and noblest seats of heaven, who have held up shaking hands in the furnace and humanly contended for glory, it is certain that our poor and patient Schubert would welcome a little ordinary happiness, just a few bright years on earth. The compensations of art are frigid ones at best. How cold are thy baths, Apollo! Lastly, blended with these phantasmic sounds and sights, the rosy smile of Caroline Esterhazy gleams across the silence, and with a sudden reversion of feeling towards the hard realities of existence, the composer is recalled to himself. Slowly and sadly he betakes himself to rest, and as he divests himself of 
his threadbare clothes, the words of good night are haunting his lips and heart. A stranger hither coming, a stranger I depart, in May mid blossoms roaming, what gladness held my heart. The mother might be scornful, the maiden's smile was bright, but now the world is mournful, the pathway wrapped in white. Thy sleep shall not be broken, my step thou shalt not hear, nor this one word low spoken, good night, good night, my dear. Afar I needs must wander, but on thy door I write, to show on thee I ponder this little word, good night. Winter Journey Song Cycle Number One All that I do is dedicated to you, he has said to Caroline, and his last thought is hers as he sinks into a heavy slumber. His last conscious act of mind is to give her far away in some green delightful distance this little word, good night. End of section three, A Day with Schubert.